because I was away for a few days this week, we won't be uh, in Hebrews this morning, but we're going to take a one-week pause and turn our minds to Philippians chapter 4. So if you would, take your Bible and turn now to Philippians chapter 4. You know, growing up, I loved the game of baseball. I played from the time I could walk. As often as my parents would let me, I had a baseball in my hand. But also, as young men tend to do, I also struggle with the sin of pride. And so the combination of pride and the love of baseball resulted for me in really loving to play baseball games, but not so much enjoying baseball practice. Anyone ever had that that problem before in youth sports? We love the game, not so much the practice. After all, I'd been playing baseball since I could walk, so what uh, what need did I have of practice? I could just show up for the game and play. And this prideful attitude came to a head one day. When I was 15, I was on the freshman baseball team for our high school, and, and our coach asked us to line up one day to take ground balls. Now, I had a good relationship with the coach, and we often... Uh, joked with one another and bantered back and forth. And so I, I, I pridefully responded, but with a joking tone, you know, oh, coach, you know, why are we focusing on fundamentals? You know, can't we just scrimmage or, or, or hit or, or do something more fun? And he just smiled and pointed to get in the back of the line. So I went, I got in the back of the line. I waited for my time. And sure enough, my time came and I readied myself and he hit the ball to me. And I moved to field the ground ball, but it it hit a rock or something and took a really odd bounce and went between my legs and rolled out into the outfield. And so as I turned to run to get the ball, I hear my coach's voice in the background, Burris, fundamentals. I had to shake my head. Yes, coach, fundamentals. You know, our tendency in life is to think that the introductory skills of any trade or profession are relegated to the rookies, the beginners, the newbies. But in actuality, the, those at the highest level of any sport or profession are those who have not abandoned the fundamentals, but who have mastered them. The same is true when it comes to the Christian life. There are certain fundamental truths and practices that are to define us from the day of our spiritual birth until the Lord brings us home to glory. And if we are to reach spiritual maturity in this life, there are no shortcuts. There's no way to get around the fundamentals and skip to the game. In our text today, the Apostle Paul is going to bring us back to some of those basic fundamentals, those things that we have to get right in the Christian life if we're going to grow to spiritual maturity. And again, it is those who are spiritually mature that have mastered these fundamentals. Obviously not in perfection in this life, but in faithful practice. We've been in the book of Philippians before, but just let me remind you of the context before we dive into our text this morning. This is one of Paul's prison epistles. He is in a Roman prison cell because of his preaching the gospel. And he writes to the Philippians to give them instruction but also to say thank you. They had sent to him a financial gift, it would appear, through the hands of one of their members named Epaphroditus. And he's sending back to them his now beloved brother in Christ, Epaphroditus, and thanking them for the gift that they've sent. But as he does that, as Paul often does, he gives them a biblical perspective. In fact, Paul shares about his current predicament and his imprisonment over and over again in the book of Philippians, and yet he he says almost nothing about his personal condition. In fact, what he does is he helps 
the Philippians understand how to have a biblical view, a gospel-centered view of suffering and trial by showing them how God is using his circumstances for the advancement of his kingdom. Let's look at our text together with that introduction. We're going to look at the verses leading up to our verses. We'll be actually studying verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4. But I want to read verse 1 through 7 to give us the context. Context. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, he begins here with a a call to peace in a relationship between two ladies in the church. We don't know the issue that that happened between them, but there was some relational issue, and he calls the leadership of the church to come alongside and to help them resolve those issues. And then he goes into this litany of commands. He calls them to rejoice at all times, ultimately to put off all anxiety. And then On the heels of that, then, he gives the instruction of verses 8 and 9, which we'll be studying today. What I want you to understand is that verses 8 and 9 really serve as a a summary of much of the perspective that Paul has outlined in the entire book of Philippians. In fact, verses 8 and 9 are going to explain for us how the Christian can rejoice always and be anxious for nothing, no matter what the circumstances are. Verses 8 and 9 are the outworking of how to live this way. And so that's why I'm saying that verses 8 and 9 really summarize some of the basic fundamentals, the necessary foundation of the Christian life and practice. He's going to tell us how we must think in verse 8, And he's going to tell us how he must live in verse 9. Let's read our text together then. Verse 8 of chapter 4 in Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. As we think of what Paul is instructing us to do here, it's actually very simple. He simply says, discipline your mind with truth and imitate the lives of faithful believers. Discipline your mind with truth and imitate the lives of faithful believers. He's going to give us two imperatives or two commands in these verses. There's a command in verse 8, and there's a command in verse 9. And all of the instruction centers on understanding those two great commands. And so let's take them in order as they come. Command number 1 in verse 8 is meditate on truth. 
meditate on truth. You want to live the Christian life? You have to become skilled at meditating on truth. Verse 8 begins, finally, brethren. Now, the word finally doesn't uh, mean that Paul has nothing else to say. Obviously, he goes on for several verses after verse 8. Instead, it's, it's really a summation, a summing up of, of the truths that he's just commanded of them, as I mentioned earlier. So he's not saying, here's the last thing I'm going to say. Instead, he's drawing our attention to, to how it is that we can carry out the previous commands he's just given. And notice he refers to them specifically as brethren. Finally, brethren. He assumes that these are believers. These are Christians. In fact, it's, it's more than just that. He's not just assuming that they're believers. In reality, you cannot apply the kind of mind and practice that Paul is going to advocate and command here unless you have first been born again. You have to know the Lord Jesus Christ in order for this to be true of your thinking and your living. And so it's not by coincidence that he calls them brethren. Now, following this, he's going to give eight descriptions of the content for the Christian mind. Six of those are, are just adjectives describing the Christian mind, and the last two are sort of summary statements that follow those adjectives. Now, normally what we would do is, is just follow the text as it comes, but I think in this unique case, it's helpful for us first to skip to the end of verse 8 and understand the command itself, and then we'll back up and look at the content of that command at the first part of the verse. If you skip to the bottom of verse 8, here is the command. Dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Essentially, discipline your mind. The word dwell means to give careful thought to a matter, to think about, to, to consider, to ponder, or to let one's mind dwell on something. In fact, Abraham is our example in this. This is the same Greek word that the author of Hebrews will use to describe Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 19. We'll read 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Verse 19, here's our verb. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now, when it says he considered, obviously, this was not a fleeting thought for Abraham. Remember, God had called Abraham to offer up his own son as a sacrifice to God. And not only his own son, but the son of promise. It was through the promise of this son that, that all of God's other promises to Abraham, his descendants, and even the nations would come to be blessed. How is it that Abraham could possibly obey God in sacrificing his own son, the son of promise? He considered something. He dwelled on something. What he did is he stepped back and considered the character of God and the fact that God is even able to raise the dead. And he said, you know what, I will trust that obedience is always the right answer to God's call and that God can still be faithful to his promise to me even if my son is dead because my God can raise the dead. That's what it is to dwell, to consider, to think deeply, to ponder. That's what Paul is calling us to do here. 
And, and this, this command is in the present tense, and so that helps us. It helps us in two ways. One, we understand that a command is not a suggestion. This is not something that is for the elite Christians to consider, and the rest of us can just you know, let others do that. Now, this is every Christian, you must dwell, you must meditate, consider in this way. But also, as we've talked about before, the present tense in the Greek language is often used to indicate a continual action. And so what Paul is saying is not only is this a command, you must do this, but it must be the continual um, ambition of the believer to dwell or to meditate on these things. It is to regularly be the content of your thinking. The fact that this is a command insinuates that it's going to require action. This is not a promise in the sense that as soon as you become a believer, you're just going to to magically or miraculously have this kind of mind implanted in you. Now, you have the Holy Spirit as a believer, and you have a new nature, but the command here means you're also going to have to give your effort to, to physically, mentally dwell on these things. It's going to have to become the, a major part of your life and personal effort. This also combats the idea that we are victims of our thoughts. Many believers many live as if you know, that they, they can't help it. These thoughts come into their mind and they, they're just swayed back and forth by the, the constant emotions of life and the constant flow of thoughts that enter their minds. But for Paul to command us to dwell a certain way, to meditate on certain things, insinuates that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Christian can take hold of their mind and think a certain way. And that's what he would call us to do here. So we have not only the command, but the responsibility then. This is to be the Christian's worldview, to take hold of their mind and to think a certain way. Paul says over and over again in Philippians, not in this exact wording, but he insinuates that right living is the product of right thinking. What goes on between your ears ultimately will affect what comes out of your mouth and the way you live your life. And so over and over again, he calls us to think. Now, in my study of this passage, I came across a a lengthy quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite preachers and authors. And this is a a section from Matthew chapter 6, where he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't normally give a quote quite this lengthy, but it was just too good to cut. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this aspect of thinking in a Christian way. He says this, Faith... According to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, talking about Matthew 6, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. And that's the real difficulty in life. Life comes to us with a club in its hand and strikes us upon the head, and we become incapable of thought, helpless and defeated. The way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. The trouble with most people, however, is that they will not think. Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask, what's going to happen to me? What can I do? Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It's a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. 
And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That's the absence of thought, a failure to think. What Lloyd-Jones is saying here is that to be a mature Christian is to be an intentional thinker. And many times we think of ourselves that we're good thinkers because our minds are full of thoughts. But those thoughts are not intentional thoughts. They're not controlled thoughts. They're not disciplined thoughts. Lloyd-Jones says that kind of thinking is not thinking at all. Thinking in, in this sense of having faith and causing our minds to be in obedience to that faith is taking hold of your mind and making it be obedient to the truth of the Word of God. That's the kind of dwelling, the kind of meditation that Paul is calling for here in our passage. Now, I just want you to think about how all of this fits together. Here are four commands that Paul already gave in Philippians chapter 4 that led up to this summary statement. And just think about the nature of these commands. First of all, he commands every Christian to rejoice always. Rejoice always. Then he goes on and says, I want you to also be characterized by gentleness. In all of your interactions, be gentle. He follows that up and says, and also put off anxiety. No more anxiety. No more worry. And then he follows that up with pray with gratitude. Pray with gratitude in your heart to the Lord. I want you to think about all four of those commands. All of those commands require a sanctified disposition, a sanctified perspective on life. It requires right thinking. If you don't think like a Christian, you will never rejoice always. If you don't think like a Christian, you will not be characterized by gentleness. If you don't think like a Christian, you will be anxious. And if you don't think like a Christian, you will not be able to pray with joy and gratitude to the Lord, but it will always be a crying out to God, sort of a discontented, my life is so hard, woe is me. To be a Christian in this sense, to think like a Christian, to pray like a Christian, to have the disposition of a Christian, you have to take hold of your thoughts. And so it's only after those commands that Paul then gives the command, discipline your mind. Dwell on these things. If you want to rejoice always, if you want to put off anxiety, you've got to think a certain way. After all, you want to know the the best way to make an anxious person more anxious? Just quote Philippians 4, 6. Have an anxious person come to you and say, I'm just struggling with worry and anxiety. Well, I've got the verse for you. Be anxious for nothing. Now they're anxious about being anxious. They're saying, now, now I'm, I'm, I'm not only anxious, I'm breaking the command of God, and so I'm anxious about doing that. What are we going to do? We quote verse 6 and read all the way through verse 9, because verse 8 is where the answer comes to us. The way that you put off anxiety, the way that you end up stopping your worry and your anxiety is by disciplining your mind to dwell on these things. You've got to think the right way. And this is not unique to this passage. Listen to some of these other examples. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
Colossians 3, 1 to 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The Old Testament is just as clear. Psalm 119, 148. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's a connection here to what we've studied just recently in the book of Hebrews. He's been commanding us to fight against hardening our hearts to the word of God. How is it that the Christian can make sure that they do not harden their hearts to the truth? It's by meditating on the truth, disciplining your mind so that your mind doesn't stray from the truth. As Lloyd-Jones will say in other places, stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. A great book, if, you, if this is a new concept for you or you struggle to, to discipline your thoughts, is this uh, Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's actually not very uh, well titled. It's not so much about depression as it is thinking like a believer, disciplining your mind. I encourage you to read that book. We have it in the bookstore. But stop listening to yourself, he says, and start preaching to yourself. But that now brings us to an obvious question. We understand the command to dwell on these things, but what are these things? What's the content of the Christian mind? And so now we're going to go back to the beginning of verse 8 and work our way down to the command as Paul really gives us, as I said, eight descriptions of the Christian mind. The first six of those are all adjectives followed by two summary statements. And each of these first six descriptions are introduced by the word whatever. Whatever. That's a summary statement. He essentially means anything in the category that this word describes. He begins here with the first adjective in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true. Whatever is true. Now, when we think about truth, we know the scriptures tell us that Truth is found in the word of God, John 17, 17. Jesus himself in his high priestly prayer says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In addition to that, Jesus says that he himself is the truth in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the word of God, both incarnate and the inspired written word of God, contain the standard of truth. But the Greek word that's used here is even more generic than that. Peter O'Brien writes of this word that it's to be understood in a comprehensive sense, denoting all that is true in thought, disposition, and deed. So what that means then is as a Christian, we have to be sure that we're filling our minds with what is true about God, what is true about our circumstance, and what is true about others. If you think about it, so much of our struggle with sin can be traced back to thinking on lies. And this doesn't always begin with a direct lie straight from the pages of Scripture. It can begin with some other type of lie, but it ultimately will end up leading us to thinking on things that are not true in accordance with Scripture. We do this when we fail to assume the best of God 
and we, when we fail to assume the best of other people. And, and we often do this also when we allow our minds to dwell on potential realities instead of the actual reality that we're living in. Let me show you how dangerous this can be with just a simple illustration that I'm sure has never happened to you, but maybe a family member or someone like that. Let's say that you text or call or otherwise message a close family member or friend. But for some reason, their response is delayed. Uh Uh-oh. You send your message, they don't write back. All kinds of things can begin to happen in our mind the longer that delay goes on. It starts out somewhat innocent. After all, as believers, we're to believe the best of one another. And so we say, I'm sure there's some major family matter that they're in the middle of. They probably haven't even seen my message. And so I'm sure there's a good explanation as to why they've not called back or texted back or whatever it may be. But then five or six or ten minutes later, we open our text stream again and we notice message read. Oh, no. Oh, no. Now it's intentional. It's intentional. They've read the message. They're not too busy to read it. They're just too busy, apparently, to respond. Right? And what can happen in the next 30 seconds is that our minds can race from everything from sadness to fear to worry to to anger to jealousy as we imagine all the reasons why they've apparently been too busy or preoccupied to reply to our message. I mean, on more than one occasion, I'll just be honest with you for a moment, my wife maybe is at a church event or something, and I expected her to be home at a certain time, and, and it's, it's later than the time that I thought it would be, and so I send a text or I, or I call, and there's no response. And, and the truth is, if I don't discipline my mind, in the matter of five seconds, I can mentally have her boxed up and buried, and I'm there preaching her funeral. No joke. <laughs> Tears in my eyes. And then she calls back right at that time. Hello? Are you okay? Yeah, mountain cedar is really rough this time of year. (laughs) Right? I mean, our minds are crazy. But you you know what's true? Is that one day, the Lord may take my wife home before me. And guess what? If the worst comes, guess what God will still be? Good. Still in control. And so you see... We, we sin against God's character when we refuse to stay in the moment and think of what's actually true. But we also sin against God's character when, when we think about those inevitable realities that, that we're afraid of. And then we get anxious and worried as if God's not going to be faithful when that happens or if that happens. He will be faithful even if the worst comes. And so it is, Paul says, Christian, think on whatever is true. What's true about God, what's true about your actual circumstance, and what's actually true about others. And don't allow your mind to go too far into the future. You know, here's an important thing for us to understand. We don't find rest from anxiety, discontentment, or fear by finding out more details about a situation. Job found that out. You know, Job asked God why. Why, God? Why have you done this to me? And you know, God never answered that question. What was the reply that God gave to Job instead? He showed himself to Job. He reminded Job who he was. And then Job said, I repent. 
now I see. I don't need the details, God. I don't need the details of what you're going to do or why you've done what you've done. All I need to know is who you are and your character and your goodness and the fact that you are infinite is enough for me. That is the cure to anxiety, to discontentment, to fear. It's not having more information. It's knowing God, knowing who he is and trusting him having faith that he really is who he says that he is. And so it is that the Christian mind is a mind filled with, dedicated to truth. But he goes on now to give other descriptions. We'll spend less time on these uh, remaining five descriptions because really they, they just elaborate on this first description. Obviously, the truth of God's word is, is supreme. It is to be the, the primary meditation of the believer, these other descriptions really fill that out. They help us understand the kinds of things we find in the Word of God. The second description here, if you look back at verse 8, whatever is true and whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable. O'Brien again writes that this is a word that's used of people and things that deserve special respect and honor. When, when things are honorable, according to the Bible, it's talking about things like the Sabbath day in the Old Testament or the law of God. But when it refers to people who are honorable, it's a person who deserves respect, an authority figure of some kind. And so in, in app, application of this word to our context, O'Brien goes on to say again, the readers are urged to focus their attention on all that is noble or honorable, that is lofty and majestic things, the very opposite of what is ignoble or vulgar. So our thoughts are to be lofty. They're to think on the majesty of God, the majesty of his truth. Just, just apply it in this way. If your thoughts, somehow we had some machine that could display your thoughts on these screens here for all to see, would they be honorable? Would everyone agree? Those are, those are lofty thoughts. Those are respectable thoughts thoughts? Are, are they filled with what is passing and fleeting or vulgar? That's the idea. Honorable thoughts. Thirdly, he goes on to say whatever is right. Whatever is right. The word for right here can also be translated as just. It's the, the, the basis, the root of the word elsewhere translated as righteous. And that's kind of the idea here. The Christian mind is is to be filled with the word of God, which is always right, which is always just, which is always full of righteousness. We're to think on what is morally right, the perfect standard of God and his word, which is related very closely to the next description, adjective number four, whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. This needs little explanation. It's the same word that's translated in other places as holy, Obviously, it includes sexual purity, but it goes beyond that to purity in every sense. It's the command that the Christian is to intentionally fill his or her mind with the beauty of the Word of God, which is always holy, always pure, which means the opposite is also assumed that the Christian would reject, refuse to dwell on those things that are impure, of course, it doesn't mean the Christian won't be tempted to think on things that are impure. 
Or, or even that our flesh may bring up thoughts that unsolicited that, that pop into our minds that are impure. But the Christian who's committed to dwelling on truth and, and dwelling on things that are right and pure takes the sword of God's word and cuts down those thoughts and temptations and replaces them again with truth and pure thoughts. But I'll tell you, having a pure mind in a fallen world doesn't come without a fight. The Christian is one who is committed to fighting that fight, to holding on to purity and thought. In addition to that, the Christian mind is to think on whatever is lovely. Whatever's lovely. That word means it's something that causes pleasure or delight. And so we could call it pleasing, agreeable, lovely, or amiable. This is a word that's only used here in the New Testament. It's only found in this one verse. It has the idea of, of, of thinking on things that are delightful, that, that bring pleasure. And obviously when we say pleasure, we mean according to God's standard, things that would please the heart of God, things that God would see as delightful. You know, when you see a beautiful sunrise, a beautiful sunset, you have that feeling of pleasure, a feeling of that is delightful. The thoughts of the Christian ought to be like that, delightful thoughts that please the heart of God because they're pure, because they're focused on what is holy and right. And the truth is, the more you immerse yourself in the Scriptures, this is why it's so important to be regularly, daily in the Word of God, because the more you immerse yourself in the Scriptures, the more you build discernment to know what is pleasing to God, so that, so that you're able to see that is displeasing to the Lord, this would please the Lord, and therefore I'm going to force my mind to think on these things. Sixthly, the sixth adjective, he says, whatever is of good repute. Good repute. This also is a Greek word only used here in the New Testament. And it's similar to what we've already said. It means praiseworthy or commendable. We might say things that have a good reputation. O'Brien, again, is helpful. He says it's used to express what is kind and likely to win people and avoiding what is likely to give offense. Now, obviously, the Christian is to fill their mind, his or her mind, with things that, that would never give offense to God. But this word seems to be broader than that. It's, it's almost to say the Christian mind should, should be respectable and honorable and of good reputation, even just to regular, good, right-thinking individuals. People should say, yes, that is a right way to think. That's good. That's of good reputation. Obviously, the fallen world has twisted what that means, but I'm saying a, a sane person who understands basic justice would say, yes, that is good. It's a good reputation. Think of it this way. You know, often we, unfortunately, are more willing to allow sinful thoughts to live in our minds about other people that we would never verbalize to them or, or even about them because we know it would be hurtful or offensive. What this word tells us is that we should be just as careful never to think those things about them, never to allow those kinds of thoughts to live in our minds, just as careful with that as we are with our words to them and about them. So that at any time, they could display those thoughts on the screen and they'd be of good reputation. They'd be pleasing, unoffensive. Now, following that, as I've introduced, there are two summarizing descriptions. He says, if there's any excellence... And if anything worthy of praise, the word if there functions like the word whatever. 
anything, anything in the category that's anything excellence, anything worthy of praise. So Paul's essentially saying, if I left out anything that's fitting for this list, anything like that, that is to be what the Christian dwells on. William Hendrickson says it this way, anything at all that is a matter of moral and spiritual excellence so that it's the proper object of praise is the right pasture the Christian mind should graze in. Let your mind safely graze there and stay out of other pastures. It's only after giving all of those beautiful eight descriptions that Paul then gives the command that we began with, dwell on these things. Meditate on these things. A disciplined mind is the prerequisite for a disciplined life of obedience. You will never be able to maintain outward conformity to truth if you don't discipline yourself to conform your mind to truth. But the Christian life, of course, is not just about thinking, is it? It includes thinking. It begins with thinking. But it is to end in an actual life of obedience. And that's where Paul turns our attention next with the second command. Command number two, walk in obedience. Verse 9. Walk in obedience. Look back at verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There again at the end of verse 9 is the command. Practice these things. It's a command in the exact same form as the Greek word for to dwell. It's an imperative in the present tense. That means keep on practicing these things. Be characterized by these things. In verse 8, we learned how to think, and now in verse 9, we're pointed to how to live. And instead of eight descriptions, he's going to give four. Four simple descriptions of how the Christian is to live. And we can break these into two parts because they come in pairs. The first two things that we're to do, he says, are the things learned and received, and the second group are the things heard and seen. I want you to practice what you've learned and received, and I want you to practice what you've heard and seen. But before we dive into the meaning of those phrases, notice these two little curious but important words. They're right in the middle of the verse. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. In me, Paul says. I want you to think back, Christian. To what you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me. Now, this takes us a bit off guard. We're we're not used to individuals in the Scripture calling for imitation of themselves. Normally, we are pushed to imitate Christ or imitate God. But here, Paul, as an apostle, is confident that he's lived a faithful life in front of these Philippians. And he says, I want you to think back to that life, and I want you to practice those things. I want you to live the way I lived in front of you. In fact, in Philippians 3.17, in the previous chapter, he says something similar but broadens it even beyond that. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He, he broadens it beyond himself. He says, I want you to follow my example and anybody else in the congregation who's faithfully living this way. Imitate them. Practice these things. Now, we understand, hopefully, as Christians, our ultimate example is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to follow Him. He is perfect. We are imperfect. But this is a reminder 
that it is not only okay, but, but right for us to, to know and identify other mature believers in the church and follow them as they follow Christ, understanding they're imperfect, and so they're going to be sinners. But whatever is faithful in them, follow that. It does bring up a question, by the way, do you live a life worthy of imitation? Would you be included in that group there in Philippians 3.17, those who also live this way? Think of it this way. If others in the church read their Bible like you read your Bible, and they prayed like you pray, and they memorized and meditated on the Scriptures like you do, and they evangelized their neighbors like you do, and they, they trusted God in trials like you do, would they grow? Would they be more faithful? in their following after the Lord Jesus Christ. May we strive to be those who, like Paul, not in pride, but but in humility, can say, hey, come with me. Do it this way. Trust the Lord in this way. He is faithful. Now, let's look at the specific things that Paul calls them to imitate in him. First of all, remember part one, he says, I want you to practice the things learned and received. Learned and received. Now, this refers to Paul's teaching ministry. Paul was there in Philippi for a time. He he helped plant this church through the preaching of the gospel. He says, I want you to remember and practice all that I taught you. But not just the things they learned, but the things they received. What he's saying is, look, I taught it to you, but I was there and witnessed that you believed it. You received it. Now do them. Do the things that I taught, the things that you confess to believe. I want you to practice those things. But in addition to that, Paul calls them to look at his life example. The second group, the second pairing of descriptions, he says, I want you to also practice what you've heard and seen in me. What you've heard and seen. Now, the word heard here probably refers to things they heard about Paul, his reputation. They'd been taught personally by Paul, but they had also heard of his reputation as it spread throughout the region of this faithful man, and this faithful man even now who's in prison as he writes this letter for his faith. He says, I want you to practice the things you've heard about me, live out my reputation for yourself, but also the things you've seen, the the personal examples that you saw in my life when I lived among you, Philippians. I want you to practice those things. Now, as we think about applying that to ourselves, we have a bit of a problem because I'm, I'm not sure how old everyone is in the room, but I'm pretty sure none of us were there in Philippi when Paul arrived on the scene. Right? We, we didn't get to see these things. So how in the world can we apply this when we didn't have the privilege of seeing how Paul lived among the Philippians? We didn't have the privilege of hearing him teach. Well, we do have two witnesses that I want to, as we wrap up our time, I want to quickly turn our mind to those two witnesses so that we too can see how Paul lived and to hear how he taught. The first thing that we have are Paul's letter, is Paul's letter. We have this letter to the Philippians. And in this one letter, Paul outlines his perspective on life. I'm just going to give you a short sampling of some of the things that he has already taught them and us in Philippians throughout the book that we can practice ourselves. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. 
so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Here in these verses, Paul says, when you go through suffering, you you see that suffering through a gospel lens. Here we have Paul giving praise to God that his imprisonment has been used for the advancement of the gospel. He goes on, Philippians 1, 21 to 24, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul looks at life and death and says both are going to be great because death will mean I get to be with Christ. Life will mean I get to keep serving Christ, but it's all Christ at the end of the day. He holds out that perspective to us. Philippians 3, 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, practice these things. Practice my perspective of the fact that nothing can surpass the riches of Jesus Christ. And finally, Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now, these are just a few examples of some of the things that Paul has taught just in this letter. And there would have obviously been many, many more things that he taught to them. But this short list shows us Paul's perspective. And so when he says practice these things, we know we can practice and should be practicing this same gospel-centered approach to life and to trials and also to value the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. But in addition, we have a second witness that we can take practical examples from and and sort of sit in the shoes of the Philippians for a moment. And that is not only Paul's letter, but Luke's record. Luke, the doctor. We have his record in the book of Acts. You remember, Luke was a, a faithful writer inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a historical account. He wrote a gospel account followed by an account of the early church, what happened at Pentecost and thereforward as the Great Commission began and the church began to grow. I want you to see his description, or just part of his description, of what happened when Paul went to Philippi. And the point of this, again, is for us to be able to apply this phrase, the things that you have seen in me, practice these things. Practice the things you saw in my life. Turn just quickly to Acts chapter 16. We won't be able to see all of this, but just a few examples from Paul's life. Acts 16, beginning in verse 11, we'll read 11 to 15. This is his first encounter with the people of Philippi. Acts 16, 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, 
was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, this is the first observation that we have of Paul in Philippi. The first thing that these people saw in Paul was this. Paul shared the gospel faithfully. Observation number one. When he says, practice the things you saw in me, the first thing they ever saw in him was a willingness to share the gospel. He brought the gospel to these people. It goes on to describe in the rest of chapter 16 that Paul and Silas begin to be followed by a demon-possessed slave girl who is declaring at the top of her lungs that these are servants of the Most High God. These are servants of the Most High God. Apparently this went on for days till Paul couldn't take it anymore. And so he turns and casts out the demon from this lady. But her owners are very upset because now they've lost the income that they were gaining from this woman. So they stir up the city, they, they beat Paul and Silas, and throw them in prison without a trial. That fast-forwards us now to verse 25, Acts 16, verse 25. Here's something else the people saw in Paul. They're in prison, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now think about that. Here they are. They've been beaten and bound. It's midnight. They're singing and praying, and in the darkness... The other prisoners are listening. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. We see that Paul trusted God in trials. We see that the gospel-centered perspective that Paul had was not just part of his, his first initial meeting with the Philippians. It went on into his life even to the point that as Paul is beaten for something that was not a crime and put in prison without a trial, he's still trusting God. And as God miraculously provides for him escape, Paul stays in the prison and has an opportunity then to witness to his own jailer who comes to Christ. And so when Paul says, the things that you've seen in me, practice these things, this is what he means. The way that you saw that the gospel colored everything about my life, practice that. The way that you saw that when I had trials in my life, I turned them by God's grace as an opportunity for the gospel, practice that. And the way that you saw that I trusted him no matter what came, even when it was not just, practice that. The things that you have not only heard from me, but seen in me, 
practice these things. Christians, this is to be us. We are to be those who dwell on the truth, and we're to be those who practice the righteousness of Christ as it's displayed in faithful believers like Paul. Practice these things. And notice finally one short phrase, a promise for all those who take seriously Paul's instruction. Here's what will happen. And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. He said earlier in that same passage that that we will have this peace, God's peace that surpasses all comprehension. And here he says, God himself, the God of peace, he will be with you. Understand, Christian, that God has not left us alone to live these things out. He's not left us alone to cultivate this kind of mind and this kind of practice. The Bible says, as you imperfectly but faithfully seek to obey him in these things, turning your mind to truth and walking in righteousness, God himself will be with you, giving you the peace in the midst of the storm so that you can continue to trust him even when darkness surrounds. That's the God that we serve. Let me ask you this morning, do you know the God of peace? Do you know him? I began the message by explaining that these things were not possible for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you, have you personally come to a place where you understand that you're a sinner and that your sin separates you from a holy God and makes you you guilty before God? But have you also come to understand that for all who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ, God's precious Son, who offered his life as a sacrifice on the cross and rose again from the dead, the Bible says anyone who will repent and believe in this one will come to have everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life with him. Will you this morning come humbly to the God of peace through his Son, Jesus Christ, turning from sin and faith in Jesus? For salvation. That's where this begins. But secondly, if you're a believer this morning, let me encourage you as Paul has to discipline your mind. Discipline your mind. Take hold of your mind. Let me ask you, what things most often dominate your thoughts? Are your thoughts dominated by the things stirred up by your emotions? Or are your thoughts dominated by the truth of Scripture? Because you take the sword of God's word, cutting down every temptation and focusing your mind on what God has said is true. Have you set up intentional patterns to consistently memorize the word so that you have something to meditate on? Are you making the, the hard effort of knowing the truth so that when temptation comes, you have something to fight against that temptation with? Discipline your mind. And secondly, finally, imitate faithful examples of Christ. Imitate faithful examples of Christ. Apply Paul's example to your own life, as we've seen in Philippians and in Acts. And then look around the church for mature believers. We have faithful believers here in our church. If you're walking through the darkness of a trial or, or difficulties of temptation, look around for those in the congregation who have walked longer than you in the faith and say, hey, can we go to coffee? Can we sit down together? Teach me how to trust the Lord more faithfully than I do. Walk with me. Hold me accountable. Ask someone to take you through partners to sit with you and walk through that program as you talk together about theology and the issues of life. But take seriously the opportunity that we have and the command that we have to imitate 
the lives of those who are faithful as we ultimately seek to imitate our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may He use that to conform us to His own image until He returns to take us home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for Your precious Word. We're thankful for the call to dwell on truth. We pray, God, that you would help us to live lives that are saturated with not only the truth of the gospel, but are motivated by the gospel to trust you in the midst of trials, to to bring the truth of the gospel to bear on the lives of others as we have opportunity. God, we recognize that our, our faith at times is so small. It's so weak, and it shows up in our poor thought life as we are beaten by our thoughts instead of cutting them down with the sword of truth. We recognize that if we're to win the battle with our mind, it's going to require your grace and your strength through the Holy Spirit. And so, God, we ask for your help. Help us to discipline not only our lives, but our our minds, but our lives, that we might walk faithfully with you. We ask it in the precious name of Christ. Amen.